You know, a lot of people ask the question, where did soul first originate? I want to tell you, and this you can put in your pipe and smoke it. Soul came from a little church on the hill way back in the country. Now I'm gonna give you now my version of true, unadulterated, granulated soul. Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to is an experiment in sound. What's that I hear? Soul clapping, Eli. That's my soul clapping. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Madcap. I'm David Ross. And I'm Daniel Bloom. The protagonists of this week's episode are two distinct producers, disc jockeys, music historians, and closeted comedians. Their story begins in Massachusetts. Let's meet these guys real quick. Eli. Charlie. Exactly. That is Eli Goldstein of Cambridge, Mass., and Charlie Levine of Brookline, Massachusetts. And they make up the group. Soul. Clap. Let's get down to business. How long have you all been uh, a duo? We've been a duo since time immemorial. Well, funnily enough, we uh, had our first gig together in D.C. And who, how'd you end up doing your first, your first show in Washington, D.C.? What led you to Just this town? Our, our friend Adam was living down here at the time. He went to what school? American. Yeah, American University. And uh, he was doing like kind of ravey parties. And uh, he had it was booked. Called, it was called Deservedly So Productions. That's right. DS. Which is ironic because one of the sub-labels of Wolf and Lamb that we're part of is called DS. So came back around. But there was a... The event was with, uh, was with, uh, why do I say, what is it, Joey Lawrence? Whoa, unbelievable. <laughs> it was Joey Peltram. I'm like, the event was with Joey Lawrence. I didn't say Joey Lawrence. I feel it was really with Joey Lawrence. I would never, it's like sacrilege. So, he, yeah, with uh, Joey Beltram and uh, someone, something, and somehow, and then Eli ended up, and I ended up DJing together. It was supposed to be like two rooms, and then it was only one room, so there wasn't, there was only time for, for one opening set. We went to Adam's house, our friend, the promoter, afterwards, and uh, made a mix that was called Disco Step, because we were bringing like two-step garage and disco house together. How often do y'all still bump that mix? You know, not enough. It really defined our sound for a long time.
in previous interviews, I've seen you all describe yourselves as the white Jewish Wu-Tang of disco. Now, that is very... Now, if that was a misquote, I don't know. But I found this in print. So, so please clarify what this means, you know what I'm saying? But I love, I love that, I love that uh, description, though. You know, in our industry, in our, in our line of work, there's a lot of late nights, and sometimes they lead to statements like that. <laughs> I mean, there's not much comparison. I mean, we are Jewish, but I don't know. Wu-Tang was a whole crew... There's only two of us. I mean, maybe you could compare our family, like the Wolf and Lamb Crew Love thing, to Wu-Tang, in a way. But, I mean, I guess we're just kind of trying to bring hip-hop back to dance music, is like one way one way that you could connect that, right? Like, we love hip-hop, we grew up on hip-hop, and, and it's not really represented in a real way in dance music, electronic music these days, so. Well, if we're talking about hip-hop influences, um, the first one that comes to mind, obviously, is Tribe Called Quest. Benita Applebaum, you gotta put me on. Benita Applebaum, you gotta put me on. Benita Applebaum, I said you gotta put me on. Benita Applebaum, you gotta put me on. Benita Applebaum, I said you gotta put me on. Benita Applebaum, you gotta put me on. Benita Applebaum, I said you gotta put me on. Benita Applebaum, you gotta put me on. Benita, Benita, Benita. Went to Carville to get a milkshake. This honey ripped me off for all my loop kicks. The car, oh yeah, there's money in my jacket. Somebody broke into my ride and co-macked it. Yo, Tip, I tell you, man, the devil's trying it. But I'm gonna stay strong, cause I ain't buying it. Tonight I'm taking Sherry out, I don't have jack to wear. You know I got to look dipped in the fresh to gear. Ooh, I found something, so I ironed it. I think I caught up on the phone, oh shit, I'm frying it. Will someone tell me what did I do to deserve this? I think I'll pull up my For sure. I was gonna say Diggable Planets. That's my that's my jam. Well, I think it's really dope. It's kind of cool, like hybrid with electronic music, because King Brit was the one that was doing the beats. That was just like just psychedelic and wild and deep and dope. And poetic. It's fun, I can dig. I keep out the flowers when they bloom if you dig. Sisters do their dips to our booms cause they dig. Muslims have perfume and the zoom be a dig. I spoke that as a sprout, then mama said to dig. The mind and the butt cause the drama ain't to dig. Lovely little honeys in the cruise is what I dig. If they fake the fig, it's the blues child dig. Fine, they be mega. Sexy, they be ultra. But don't enroll in pageants to get judged by the showbiz. Crazy fly whips, baggy jeans and sneakers, silver hoops and jeeps, hip hop in the speakers. The gag rule is bunk, it's like chains on the rump. We help to liberate through this butt shaking funk. Nikki, Giovanni, and Maya, flam, but poem, so I tried it for the units, cause damn. Cause swoon units, swoon units, the units I know are the swoon. That was like one of my favorite groups from back then. 
ties both those in together is that both have this big jazz influence in that hip hop. But then, I mean, then there's like the funk influence. I mean, this is like to go back to us as as musicians and artists and music fans. I love jazz. Charlie grew up on funk. So then we got to mention the West Coast. Like Dre and Snoop was definitely also a major hip hop influence, right? Freeze. Had ease. Now let me drop some more of them keys. It's 199 Trace, so let me just play. It's Snoop Dogg, I'm on the mic, I'm back with Dr. Dre. But this time, I'm gonna hit your ass with a touch to leave motherfuckers in the days fucked up. So sit back, relax, new jacks get smacked. It's Snoop Doggy Dogg, I'm at the top of the stack. I don't blank for a second, and I'm still checking. The dopest motherfucker that you're hearing on the record is me. So funk, so George Clinton was pretty influential, I perceive. George Clinton, for me, is like the most influential period. Now, this is what I want y'all to do. If you got faults, defects, or shortcomings, you know, like arthritis, rheumatism, or migraines, whatever part of your body it is, I want you to lay it on your radio. Let the vibes flow through. Funk not only moves, it can remove. Dig? The desired effect is what you get when you improve your interplanetary functionship. Sir Lollipop Man. And that's an amazing topic of conversation at the moment because we've linked up with him and, and the Parliament Funkadelic camp and we've been kind of knighted, honorary, uh, nice nice Jewish white funketeers. the <laughs> What were your musical background in terms of like what were your parents listening to? What sort of like what sort of sounds were in the home? For me, my dad was was uh, really into jazz. He played bass, um, or he still does sometimes. But um, he was in bands and stuff growing up in Chicago, and that was like upright, yeah. So he was he was like a big jazz head. So a lot of the a lot of the more like experimental, hard bop, post bop stuff. So um, Coltrane was a big one. Um, my parents, well, geez, there, you know, there's like classical, there's jazz, uh, you know, they grew up kind of, uh, folk music, Van Morrison and, um, Joan Baez, Dylan. La, 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 la.
Jeez, but also Fleetwood Mac. I remember hearing quite quite often. But then by you know, by the time I was older or a little bit older, you know, it's like Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson and stuff. So kind of ran the, the gamut. What's your do you have a favorite uh Stevie album? Um Songs in the Key of Life. Good morning, evening, friends. Here's your friendly announcer. I have serious news to pass on to everyone. What I'm about to say couldn't mean the world's disaster. Change your joy and laughter to tears and pain. You're listening to Madcap, and we're hearing an interview with the great Soul Clap. These guys have been running wild around the globe, country hopping, spreading their deep, extremely deep, soul throughout the world. One mix that we really like is their set at Detroit's Movement Festival last year. Here's a taste. So tell me about the, is it the Marcy Hotel? Is that what it's called? Now, can people stay at this place? People have slept there, but on the floor. Um, The Marcy is a real functional five-star hotel. You can book a reservation on Expedia.com. No, you have to do it through the Marcy website. You have to do it through the Marcy website. You can't book it on Expedia. If you're a member of the Starwood group, you get a free cookie upon checking in. Yes! That's awesome! Well, I think our, our listeners are really gonna uh, spin over there to make this happen. Uh, the Marcy is a fictitious hotel. and uh, With an amazing website. With an amazing website, and it, is conf- it confuses people all the time. And uh, you know, people try to check in. There's been fans that try to get summer internships there. Um, in reality, it's actually a legendary loft party spot in in Williamsburg that is currently not in operation. Describe, I guess, the dance music scene in Williamsburg. Like, how would you, I mean, it's comparably to cause like Miami, uh, like describe this, the scenes uh, like regionally within the U.S. I mean, I remember going to Williamsburg and going to like, what was it? You remember that Galapagos art space or like the bunker, places like that? But then once we stumbled upon the Marcy, that was like, for me, at least, that was like the be-all, end-all of like where I would go in Brooklyn. So, like, I guess my experience is is pretty narrow. Um, but you know, this was a place where you could just really be free and just have this 
incredible, unifying, dope, crazy time. I don't know. Why don't you? You had to um, believe it, really. Yeah, I mean that's that was the Marcy, but like I think Brooklyn has been kind of the place for for underground music in New York for a while. Like from not just Williamsburg, but like there's tons of there's been warehouse parties and stuff going on for five plus six seven years i mean for a long time but this like new newest wave of what's become like the big new york scene in like five six years and now williamsburg actually has more has clubs opening up so it's starting to become actually like a real nightlife destination not just like illegal parties and rock and roll so like describe that scene compared to miami Miami's just wacky. I mean, there's like this art thing going on now, and obviously there's been the electric pickle. There was kind of degenerate clubs like the pawn shop. Um, and then there's all the degenerate clubs. What's a degenerate club? We gotta explain. Place where a bunch of degenerates hang out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Miami has this thing where, where there's very like uh, there's a lot more lawlessness. You know, it's not like it's not like most of it's not like the rest of of the U.S. Like, it's very Latin, and, like, you can do whatever you want, and if you get caught, then you just pay You just pay your fine. So there's clubs, you know, there's been many clubs that have been 24-hour clubs that have come and gone. Um, there are many 24-hour places now. And, like Charlie said, there's the Electric Pickle, which has been kind of our home down there for, like, five years. There's been moments there where it's been very lawless as well, <laughs> like where we would throw a party and then lock the doors and go until the next afternoon. So it's uh, Miami is very free, you know. New York has a lot more kind of control feeling, and the police might show up at any time. Whereas Miami, it's like do whatever you want. They both have equal moments of douchebaggery. <laughs> Just want to throw that in there. Douchebaggery. So tell me about Boston. Now you all hail from Boston, okay? Tell me about the place Phoenix Landing. The Phoenix is funny. Um, you know, it's like half sports pub slash the center of all electronic music in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, so it's funny, uh, you know, leave it to Irish owners to believe that electronic music could be something that would happen all the time. You know, but Boston has a long history of nightlife. Unfortunately, by the time that we were of age, it was pretty uh, booty, you know. Jeez, she's got a... Bootylicious is... I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's fair. I mean, we had, like, looking back now, the period in the, like, late 90s, early 2000s, there was, like, a whole street of clubs, Lansdowne Street, where it was Avalon, Axis, a number of other clubs, and they were, they were getting all the best electronic DJs in the world at that point. It wasn't really underground, but at least there were venues where this was happening on the weekends. So whereas now, like, while we have the Phoenix Landing and a couple other venues in Boston, there just aren't larger-scale clubs for for cool electronic music on the weekends sure you get like a big club where they can book a, a bigger dj like axwell or something but other than that there's not like a mid-range mid-range venues in, in the city i'm just thinking more about like the 1999 ish 2000 until 2000 when we left like 2008 i mean once that avalon, was like once avalon, really closed, once avalon closed there was nothing like that was like we got we had to like 2005 or 2006 with avalon which was still, it still wasn't great. But after that, there was nothing. Like we basically had to, like the scene literally, literally was zero. We had to build it up from, from nothing. That was when we really started throwing parties and like, and basically, yeah, built it up from, from zero at that point. That was an incredibly frustrating period of time. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was finally once we had something off the ground called Dancing on the Charles, which was like, you know, celebration, summertime, outdoors on the Charles River. I think we had five shows, six shows. And after that season had ended and like the liquor licensing commission shut us down, that's when we really said, you know what? If we're going to take a chance with this dance music thing, it's going to be now. And that's when we went to Berlin. We're all about places on the show, as you can tell. I mean, because I feel like places define a lot of things in your life. So yeah, not only that, but this this dance music thing is really global, and it's yeah, to make it as a DJ, you are traveling. So places is, you know, totally appropriate. So I want to talk about uh, the creation process. So when you all like want to, I guess, create music, what is? And I'm not talking about psychedelics. Well, like what what is like. What puts you at ease? You know what I'm saying? What's like? What's what's your typical studio ritual? Whatever, anything. The couch. Uh, I was gonna say incense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the couch. couch. Yeah, we have a really non-traditional style. We're using laptops. We're using a lot of software and hardware, but not like so set up, standing in front of speakers. Like maybe we're we'll we'll have it so we're on our feet instead of sitting down, so we can move around, dance around, or you know, there's things constantly plugging in and unplugging. Um, it's really, it's a great process. I was just telling Eli on the phone earlier today that every time that I'm working on music, I'm reminded, you know, what the important part of this life job is. The music making is like, for me, it's the best. I want to love that is warm and low as mine. yeah, I think it's also about a lot about improvisation, our process, you know. And we, we don't we work with we work with our friends, you know, we don't we're not generally getting in the studio with people we don't know, although now because of this P Funk thing we're we're learning how to do that, I think, in a new way. But generally our production, yeah, is just hanging out with with homies from from the Wolf and Lamb labels and uh, just jamming, seeing what happens, or you know, just the two of us hanging out jamming. So it's a lot of like improvisation and jamming and like funk jazz style. So Wolf Lamb Soul Clap Records, explain the relationship there. Well, we got down with those guys, Wolf and Lamb, in 2008, um, and we had some edits at that time the love light and conscious edits which became the first wolf and lamb black so they kind of created a sub label to release our edits became the focal point of their DJ sets. And a few years later, 
we did the DJ Kicks project together, and that kind of solidified this brand WLSC, which is the two duos together. We have a lot in common. We're also, you know, very ambitious about making it in this industry and, you know, collaborating and growing this family. We really, you know, their their values are really instilled in us, how to A&R label, how to run a crew. And so now it's a kind of joint experience. Worst party, don't have to say the venue, city, but what made it the worst party? What The worst party? Hold on, I gotta see if I can remember being really unsatisfied. What was the worst party? Um, Too many lights. People are just wasted and falling over. Oh, we did have a gig. Out of all the amazing... Um, Australia gigs. One of them was kind of a bust where like, okay, you know, self-powered sound systems, stages in small venues, and keeping the lights on all the time are just like recipe for just awkwardness, you know? It's, that's weird. That was a weird one. Most amazing party, if you can, if you can pinpoint one, can you? There's like, I mean, these parties we do at, at Winter Music Conference at the Electric Pickle with the whole crew. Pretty much every year, I feel like one of the best, one of the most memorable. It's definitely always when we have the whole family with us that the parties are the best, I think. So, yeah, I mean, there's a number of them, but I think it's always it's with the crew. Shout out to Dallas, Texas. Dallas appreciates that. Freaks, trannies, uh, cool clubbers. You remember, like, uh, that movie uh, uh, Party Monster? I think it's so important to begin with a bag, don't you? One day, I realized I didn't want to have to get up in the morning and go to work. I'm Michael Al. King of the club kids. I want you to teach me how to be fabulous. Don't dream it, be it. Fabulous. So it should come as no surprise that I ended up in New York City. I wanted to create my own world. One big party. You need me to promote this place. We'll see. You won't regret this. You've gone too far with the drugs. They're the feds, and they're watching around the clock. So you're just paranoid. Michael, where's my money? Anything or anyone missing? Angel. No, I don't. With Macaulay Culkin about the um, that's must That's must-see uh, must dance music viewing. There was a party called was Disco 2000, right? Uh, yeah, the party Disco was. 2000 at the Limelight with the DJ Kiyoki. Remember that guy from like the 90s? Right. And this guy, Scotty DJ Red Eye, was another one of the residents. And this this was like the club kid era. You know, remember the club kids when they look like just crazy neon platform, you know, cyber, kind of cyberpunk, goth, rave freak. Yeah, they they had like a you know what was they they threw a party on a New York subway train or something or so saith the movie. Anyway, this is like this is one of the guys. So 
it's cool to come across that stuff like 20 years to 15 years later so what year is this where where am i you said macaulay culkin was in this what year did this come out macaulay, macaulay culkin is like the lead freak yeah something happened like the, he was the promoter and then uh he killed somebody or someone killed him and yeah. his lover was like a the movie the movie came out in like late 90s or something early 2000s the book was called Disco Bloodbath. Disco Bloodbath. The right. book is really great. Actually, the book is way better than the movie. But if you're just gonna, if you're not a book reader, then go see the movie. Who wrote it? The actual one of the guys who was who was like the yeah. and really super involved, like one of the main main people. So yeah, the resident DJ is the resident DJ at this club in Dallas, Texas, and the club owner is one of the other uh, promoters. She was, she's one of the promoters. The place is called. That'll do. It'll do. It'll do. It'll do. Okay, uh, another question. So, if a uh, if a distant relative, older, would be coming to a show this evening and they've never been, how would you describe the sound? Dance music for your mother. <laughs> I think you know, moms really like our DJ sets because you know, there's always a taste of something classic in there. We keep and classy, and sensitive, and sexual. And when it comes to Eli's mom, you know, your mom's. <laughs> you know I want your love. Every single night, you know I want your love. Someone to whom you take if I had your love. Everything will be alright, you know I want your love. I need someone to love me like you loved me. You know I've loved, but baby, no. Like, don't let him talk about you like this. Well, he didn't actually diss. He, he held back. He knew. He almost went there, and then he realized. Okay. All right, good, good. I just want to make sure we have a, have a nice and clean interview. Like every self-respecting Jew or Israelite or Hebrewite, as we've been known throughout the centuries, there comes a time when we must travel to the motherland. Not with our parents, but with our peers. a pilgrimage that serves as a building block of Jewish identity. It's called birthright. Gentiles, you may have heard or become envious of this and who could blame you. It's a free trip to Israel, the Levant, ladies and gentlemen, and it's quite amazing. Our friend Abby Kutcher came along and she had this uh, point and shoot, you know, like disposable camera. And we, I, when we fell asleep on the on the bus, she kind of uh, take pic- pictures up our skirts, if you will. And then um, that was she was collecting balls shots. That was that was fun. Um, I don't know if I can top that one. Yeah, that was that was the wildest thing that happened. But I lied on my application. I had been uh, twice already, and this was like us wanted me wanted to go with Eli and bring our friend Abby along, 
And so, yeah, I lied and um and I and I lied. So, uh, you know, fuck you, Juice. I don't know. All right, so I know you all have to get out of here and go to dinner. So, I'm going to get um give me two obscure sentences each. No, just like one from you and one from you. Straight hair ain't got no curl. That was that was Charles. Uh, it is what it is. That was Eli Goldstein and Charlie Levine. Soul clap. Special thanks to Eli and Charlie for speaking with David. And special thanks to Melissa for helping arrange this interview. We'd also like to thank Jess. Also, special thanks must go out to the Donovan House, a Kimpton hotel, who has assisted us not once, but twice. Dose, David. Yes, they have. Yes, they have. And we're thankful for it. For more information about their tour dates or their podcast, please visit their website, soulclap.us. And to be filled in on their crew love mixes, please visit crewlove.us. David Ross's conversation with Charlie and Eli of Soul Clap. And now we have a visit with the very first guest who ever graced this show with her presence. From Russia with love, I fly to you. Much wiser since my goodbye. To you, I've traveled the world to learn I must return from Russia with love. I've seen places. My real full name in Russian is Yelena Leonidovna Minkovskaya. And then Alena is a nickname for Yelena, and then non-Russian speakers can't say Alena properly, so it's just Alona. So you're trying to help us out like by two (laughs) levels, and people still can't get it. Um, Yeah, what are you going to do? Alona Minkovsky is a journalist and a host on Huffington Post Live with a unique perspective on Russia. Born in Moscow and raised in California, We called Alona to get her take on the recent political upheaval in Ukraine and the Russian incursion into Crimea. But we began on a lighter note by discussing her experience at the Winter Olympics in Sochi. To Russia I flew. HuffPost sent you to Sochi. How was it? It was amazing. I I had such a fun time. For me, obviously, I was doing a little bit of work while I was there, but also, personally, I have an attachment to the Winter Olympics. My mother was a 
winter Olympian. She's a three-time Olympic gold medalist, actually, in pairs skating. And she lit the torch in the opening ceremony, and I was there with my brother. We both got to watch from the stands. So all of that was really cool. And also, I'm just a sports fan. So for me, getting to go to events every day, I went to a lot of figure skating. I saw the team competition, the pairs competition, the men's individual competition. Got to one hockey game, Russia versus Slovenia, got some short track. What was the most memorable sporting event that you got to see? All of them were really cool, you know, so they're they're all a little bit of a different experience. Like, I loved going to the hockey games because I always love going to hockey games because the fans really, really get into it. And it's one where you can be rowdy as a fan and you can stand up and you can scream and shout and say and do whatever you want. But, you know, the figure skating, obviously, I might be, I might be a little bit biased, but that I certainly, uh, certainly enjoyed. Yeah, I think that maybe... Maybe the hockey game was my favorite. I hadn't even really thought of it that way. But figure skating was fun for me, too, because there was some intrigue when he's getting a pollution trend and dropping out. And so there was all kinds of little theories that I was discussing with, uh, with Huff's Post because I was getting my, my intel <laughs> <laughs> from, uh, from those on the inside of the, of the figure skating world as to whether or not this was something that had been pre-planned. Because uh, I can tell you that I heard a lot of chatter days before after they won the after Russia won the gold in the team figure skating competition that, you know, Putin's probably wouldn't skate and that he was gonna pull out and um and it ended up being the truth. What can I say? Can you figure skate yourself? Good question. No, sadly, I don't figure skate myself. I I did, I dabbled when I was maybe five or six years old. Okay. And thankfully my mother didn't force me to continue on with it because I was painfully shy as a child. And so when they would try to put me in those, like, group figure skating shows with all the other kids, I would just kind of stand there in the middle of the ice by myself and start, like, hold my head down and start crying. <laughs> I didn't actually want to skate with everybody else. Painfully shy. When did the shyness end? I don't know. People ask me that. Maybe once alcohol was introduced into my life and entered the equation, maybe that's when some of the shyness uh, went away. <laughs> but... But I'm not sure exactly what to trace it back to or what date and what time. Did we really talk about Tinder yet, Daniel? No, we didn't. Oh, yes. We did not. Hold on a second. Wait, 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 let's get there. Don't, you know, remember, 20 minutes. I hear you, but... Of foreplay. Before you get to Tinder. Okay, back to Sochi. Did you guys watch all the games, by the way? I mean, what did... I'm curious. I watched what, a good deal of it. One day I was uh, really sick and I woke up really early and couldn't get back to bed. So I turned it on and watched the, what was it called? The Ski Cross or something, which is a brand new event this year. The slope style, right? Slope style. What is going on? I guess I'm not watching the X Games <laughs> enough because I was blown away. I'm like, so let me get this straight. These dudes are going down the hill with like grind poles and they're going to do these crazy jumps and then they're going to do triple backflips and land backwards. What in the hell is going on here? You didn't have that sport in middle school? <laughs> I, mean, I could not believe it. And then, and then I saw this Swedish guy, I'm going to have to look up his name, who was rolling down the hill with these long blonde dreads Looked like Ross Trent, that Andy Samberg <laughs> sketch from Saturday Night Live. It just made me so happy. Rastafarianism. Yes, I, Ross Trent. 
since I was switching religions. Excuse me. And this one dude is going down with no ski poles. Like it's no big deal. And that was some of the craziest <laughs> sporting competition I've ever seen. It yep. is amazing. You know, I, w I went up there um, to, to see some of the mountain events. And so I was at the, the Extreme Park, as they called it, where the they had like the half pipe and the whole slope style track. And once you're there in person, and you, I mean, you know, it's already amazing when you watch these things on TV, but when you're there in person and you look at uh, how steep these hills are, you know, how, how steep some of the jumps are and how big they are, seeing all that in person just makes you just freak out and go like, wow. You know, then it, then it really, really hits home as to how incredible it is with these uh what these athletes are performing. Henrik Harlut is my boy's name. By far my favorite Olympian of all time. All right. Noted. I'll, t I'll, I'll, tweet, I'll, tweet, I'll, tweet, I'll tweet out a picture of my boy at we'll MadCatPC. Sure uh, make sure you guys get a chance to meet. Please. Yeah. I hope he favorites. He's got a new fan for sure. <laughs> so uh, uh, a pastime over there for you was uh, Tinder. Tell me, who caught your interest not on just, Tinder? Not just for her. This became an international story because the Olympians were said that the Tinder scene at the Athletes' Village was, quote, out of control. So can you corroborate That's this? That's right. Um, you know what? I actually wish that Tinder was part of the fun experience for me, and this is uh, that I had been doing it since the first day that I got there. Because the truth is, I didn't even know that Tinder worked in Sochi. It didn't even cross my mind <laughs> until one of the athletes had told the press there that apparently it was next level in the Olympic Village. So, of course, I immediately get an email from my producers that are like, Hi, Mona. So, you know, this means you should do some Tindering while you're in Sochi. <laughs> so, so it became my assignment. And so I, I started tindering, and um, I mean, I don't have no, there were some major, major hotties on Tinder there. Like, since since returning from the Olympics, I went back on Tinder here in New York, and the first day I was like, I don't understand, and they put me in some new category where I'm only being the ugly people? <laughs> and I was just so disgusted, and, and I was like, stop, it's something, you know, uh, it's happening to me on purpose, that I had been punished for some reason. And then I just realized that, that's what Tinder in New York is like compared to being in a place where it's just all young, athletic, for the most part, attractive people. And, um, you know, I was kind of, I was seeking out athletes. So that was part of my assignment for work. Of um, course. And, of and, course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seeking out athletes. Sounds like my life. Continue. <laughs> so, like, some of them would be really straightforward about what it is. They would, you know, they would have a freestyle Olympic skier written on their little description. Other people were a little bit more discreet, and so you kind of had to piece it together or just give it a shot, uh, you know, because they posted some photos that made them look athletic or, like, they like to be active and and wonder if it's going to go anywhere. And so there were a ton of athletes. I'll have you know, most of them were up in, like, the mountain village, which was far away from where my hotel was. So it was, like, 30 miles away or so. And so it was mostly, like, skiers and snowboarders uh, I'd say that they were the the main hotties. <laughs> let, let me put it this way. I hate to stereotype, but some of the people that I spoke to were nice and were like, what are you doing here? And blah, blah, blah. And of course, I disclosed that I was a journalist. Um, because you're ethical. <laughs> I, I try to be. Um, and then there was like a hockey player that I was tindering with who was just really straight to the point. would just be like, do you like to party? Would you like to party? <laughs> when do you want to party? Like, there was no messing around.
Was he Latvian? And, <laughs> now, and where I went to party. Um, Slovenian. I, mean, I don't know if that yeah. was the accent that I did there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you should have so, partied. What if that meant like a, a nice cup of coffee? You know what I'm saying? Or I, ice cream sundae. But you know, all of them were like, oh, we should, we should. Uh, we should hang out, but it'd always be after their event. You know, it would be like my event's on the 18th, so like we should hang out after that. And I'm like, dude, I'm not gonna be here anymore. Sorry, that's you know a week from now, and I was only here for the first week. So a lot of them were just straight business up until that point. But yeah, I, I didn't actually meet up with any of them because I started doing this probably my second to last day. And again, it was a work experiment. But kind of wish I'd started earlier. I could have been marrying an Olympian by now. Yes, you could have. Yes, you could have. But you got way closer than we did to this experience, so we will <laughs> happily live vicariously through you. So th- it was fun. Thank, thank God for Tinder for providing me some uh, much-needed entertainment. You never know; there may be a future uh, place of employment for any of us. You know, teaching a class in Tinder ethics at the community college <laughs> level. <laughs> I believe it. That might be coming. Twenty-first century. You never know. I've I've learned a lot of Tinder lessons in the last couple months. I can tell you that. I wonder if the protesters who overthrew Viktor Yanukovych in the Kiev main square <laughs> used Tinder um, during their I, downtime. I, I I do not know. I, I I would like to think that they probably have you know more important things to worry about at the moment, but you, you never know. How about that segue, David? <laughs> yeah, that was that was really smooth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we did want to ask you about this because I remember, I believe it was around 2008 in the Beijing Olympics when we had this whole situation with South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And now, coincidentally, right after the Sochi Olympics, during the Olympics, we have the incredible protests going on in Kiev. And now, directly following the Olympics, we got this crisis in Crimea. So uh, you being of Russian parentage and being so connected to the news business as you are currently, wonder if you could just give us a bird's eye view from your perspective about what has gone on in Ukraine and what's going on now. It's a complicated situation. And I mean, you know, Ukraine is, is a country that has been battling with insanely corrupt leaders for a very long time, and especially somebody like uh, Yanukovych, who essentially just looted the country. Uh, you know, I mean, people ended up posting photos of his lavish mansion. Yeah, I saw that. I that. think he called a, a, a fixer-upper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't turnkey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it just shows you, you know, kind of the disconnect here between how it is that the political leaders are living versus, um, you know, versus just average Ukrainians. So people rightly so, I think, are angry and are frustrated and want some kind of change. You know, and a lot of people have been, um, I've been talking about the deal that Yanukovych was working on with the EU, and then Russia basically ended up coming back with a better offer and outbidding them and saying, well, we'll give you $15 billion and we will reduce your gas prices. And so he went with that, and that's when people started, um, you know, really rebelling against that. And you saw the government pull some very bad moves, like mm-hmm. when they tried to pass a law banning all forms of protest. But, you know, it certainly, it got it got violent, and... You know, there were over 100 people that were killed. And so it's a very serious matter. But what's going on now is, of course, you have the region of Crimea, which is highly populated with Russian speakers. And in Crimea and in most of eastern Ukraine, you have a lot of the population that really identifies, uh, you know, with Russia, too. And so there are clear, 
internal divisions within Ukraine as to what direction the public really wants to go. And I think that that's one of the things that people really have to realize. You know, a lot of the time I think that foreign media coverage of uh, of situations in other countries can be incredibly shallow. And, and you know, they paint everything as a, as a black and white, oversimplified picture, and they miss a lot of the nuance. And so this isn't just some, like, East versus West type of battle, but uh, this is this is something that is divisive within Ukraine itself as a country. That said, you now also have, as usual, uh, you know, global powers choosing to use small countries like Ukraine like political pawns. And I think that that's exactly what Vladimir Putin here is doing, is he ended up being able to exploit a situation where there was instability right on the Russian border, you know, and using this line that they're going to protect Russian speakers and Russians in Ukraine and, and, and using that to make a very aggressive move, you know, and then this leads the United States, especially, I would say, European countries, but really especially the United States, to condemn Russia's actions and then you realize that everybody's a hypocrite because you have a lot of people saying, oh, well, it's really rich of, you know, the United States to be talking about how you can't just intervene mm-hmm. in countries in the in the 20th century. Well, yeah, I guess what, the United States does that too. Uh, you know, and a lot of people are pointing at Iraq and a lot of people are talking about the shadow wars and where we have not actually declared war and yet are taking out people via drone strikes uh, like Yemen or Pakistan or Somalia. Mm-hmm. And so that critique is very fair. At the same time, Putin's a huge hypocrite, too, of course, because, you know, Russia is always the, the first country to point out, um, you know, or, or that, that you need international approval for any type of intervention. And we've seen them do this with Libya. We've seen them do this with Syria, um, you know, and there have been other examples. But, you know, in this case, I guess it just doesn't apply. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult and it's a complicated situation. I mean, at this point, you know, I don't really think that it's going to progress much further, and this is kind of my hope and my guess. Uh, you know, we haven't actually seen it get violent. Of course, Russia is also denying that these Russian troops that are there, and they are all wearing unmarked uniforms, and so they're essentially just like private contractors that have been hired by, by the Russians. And that so- is so shady. I <laughs> saw that, too. We've seen that before. Yeah, but then they get to play these weird, you know, like rhetorical games. Saying like I don't know what you're talking about. What Russian troops? <laughs> it's so bizarre. But I think that you know ultimately what would be best is is for Russia and the United States and Europe to try to all work together on something like this rather than you know I mean listen Russia is clearly in the wrong because they're the ones that are acting like the aggressor. But I think that other countries should try to maybe foster an environment where diplomatic means could work uh you know if at this point it's in everyone's interest to try to see the interim government turn into something that's more of a legitimate government in ukraine and um you know i don't see why the powers could work together because unfortunately you know so we have um the united states which has just offered a one billion dollar aid package to ukraine you have europe which is talking about possibly a 15 billion dollar aid package to ukraine these are all good things, and they're a good start, but you have to wonder whose hands that money is going to end up in. And that and most so of that I, $15 billion is also just in loans, so they're going to have to end up paying yeah. that back at some point somehow anyway. It's loans, which, yeah, especially if it's you know IMF funds, and this means that they come along with, uh, with austerity measures mm-hmm. yeah, that they're going to have to inflict. And 
And the people that are still in charge in Ukraine now, they're already within the system. Right? Maybe they were opposition fingers, but they were already working within the system. And actually, we showed yesterday um, on my program at Hope Post Live when we were talking about this, that picture of Yanukovych's mansion and the lavish mansion. And then we showed a picture of the newly elected prime minister as of a couple of days ago and his so-called cottage, which is like two doors down from... Right. <laughs> from the old president's mansion, you know? And so I think that is just a really good visualization and a good good uh, example for you to understand that, you know, it's going to take a lot more to really root out corruption and fundamentally change the system and make sure that that Ukraine can uh, get back on its feet. You really don't foresee violence from this? I, I hope not. I hope not. You know, I mean, you did have Russia agree to meet with NATO and speak today. Um... It doesn't seem like in other respects, diplomatically, things aren't going anywhere yet. But also, you haven't seen any kind of, there's, what, there's a small, uh, there were a couple of warning shots that were fired by Russian, by the Russian unmarked troops, um, you know, at a military base where they had a standoff with some of the Ukrainian soldiers. But no one was hurt, thankfully, but that's it, right? At this point, you haven't really seen any other aggressive military action. Of course, when situations are this tense, I think, unfortunately, anything can, any startling event, uh, you know, might have a trigger effect, really, and, and lead to something worse. So, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I guess I'm just being hopeful and, and, and wishful here and, and hoping that all of this will be resolved in a non-military means. Well, this has been a fascinating analysis, and thank you so much for lending your expertise to this program, Alona. We really appreciate it. Uh, I saw the news that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is meeting with American Secretary of State John Kerry in Paris, and the one thing that's on the table is the United States possibly shelving their involvement in the coming G8 summit, which is to be held in Russia. But aside from maybe speeding up some economic sanctions or making the Russian regime pay economically, which has already happened through, you know, a big drop in the Russian and Ukrainian stock market for that Mm -hmm. matter. Really, what it says to me is the relative lack of tools in the toolkit of the West or of the United States of what what can they really do? Nobody wants to see, you know, a heating up of the former Cold War powers that got so close to war back in the 80s and, and never even got there. What do you think is actually on the table? What are the American specifically options to going forward? Um, no, you're, you're very right in the sense that there aren't a whole lot of options. Uh, you know, nobody wants to see a war except for maybe, you know, like the John McCain's and the Lindsey Graham's <laughs> and the, those people in the world that we like to call war hawks because sure. it seems like they always want war in any type of situation. You know, I mean, I think it also just proves that, you know, Ukraine is in an odd position where you have to wonder, you know, Russia can claim some type of strategic and, uh, you know, security based importance to Ukraine because it's right there, it's right on the border, because there is so much shared history and shared culture. What exactly is in the strategic interest of the European Union? Probably a little bit more so, but especially the United States. I think it's, it's pretty hard to, to find something that, you know, is a really convincing argument there. And so, of course, the United States is going to go to war with Russia over something like Ukraine. I mean, we would hope they wouldn't go to war with Russia in general, but I'm sure Putin would like to see it as and reasserting his geopolitical power and strength and, uh, you know, just a sign that, like, Russia's back. 
right after yeah. after uh, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It's been a long, hard road for them. And in a sense, I think they're a little bit right because uh, I just mean that if he were to, or if he were to be thinking that Russia has incredibly strong trade ties with China as well. It's a different world now, and so now you have emerging and developing economies with which Russia gets to partner where the United States can't exactly exert so much control, even when it comes to economic sanctions. There was a, a saying from a Russian official that there was a reporter from the Daily Beast, Josh Rogan, that had tweeted this last week when they first kind of brought up the idea of maybe not going to the G8 in Sochi, the United States not going, and he said, there's a Russian saying that says you can't scare a hedgehog with a naked ass. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious And we brought up on our show yesterday Because it's just so Russian to use all kinds of weird sayings like that I think that that is their attitude at the moment And I think that if the United States is going to Try to exert some power here uh, You know, via economic and diplomatic sanctions They can't do it alone They really need to have Europe on board with them Which at this point, Europe isn't willing to do Because they have so many trade and economic interests with Russia. And so, you know, so that would just make the United States look isolated. So I don't think that there's a whole lot to do here. Yeah, I, I think... And, it, others, and, and that's why, again, that's why I'm pushing for, you know, is it so much to just ask that we try to come up with diplomatic solutions rather than, uh, you know, moralizing each other all the time and then drawing these red lines. We never even know what the red lines exactly are, and then they always get crossed, and mm-hmm. then people start clamoring and calling for some kind of action, but nobody actually wants military action, and so the whole thing just becomes very convoluted. Well, we're, we're, we're having uh, Putin and Obama in studio next week, so we're going to get to the bottom <laughs> of this, so uh, please feed us questions. Uh, Alona, from D.C. to New York, thank you so much for uh, allocating this time to speak with us. Anytime, guys. Thanks so much. Fantastic. All right, Alona, take care. All right, have a good one. Happy tindering. Happy tindering. (laughs) All right. I'll have more stories for you next time. Beautiful. Perfect. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right, bye. Alona Minkowski. Find her on Twitter at Alona Mink. That's at A-L-Y-O-N-A-M-I-N-K. And see her hosting Huffington Post Live at live.huffingtonpost.com. Madcap is produced by Dan Bloom, David Ross, and Afim Shapiro. Our intern is Marquise Goodwin. MadcapDC.org. On Facebook and Twitter at MadcapDC. Mm-hmm.